Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to uh, our show, The Week on Radio, uh, where we're going to discuss the sort of main news stories from the week, the good news, the bad news, a little bit of everything. We've got some sport books and then we're going to finish off with um, a film of the week as well. Um, so this is The Week on Radio with myself, Erin Wilson. And me, Harry Holmes. So our first story this week is the explosion and subsequent collapse of the Kerch Bridge which links Russia to Crimea and we've paired this story with some comments from uh, President Zelensky which links back to how we spoke about it last week where we were talking about escalation last week in this war and how that is becoming a, a very scary thing but Zelensky this week alongside the attack on the um, Kerch Bridge has said that he thinks Putin is preparing the Russian people for the use of nuclear weapons. He said he doesn't think they're ready to use them, but he said he's preparing the Russian people. So just in, in link to the bridge, I think there was some immediate um, ambiguity as to who who was resp- who was behind the attack on the bridge, but I think it's since come out that a Ukrainian official has pretty much confirmed that it was Ukraine. Um, behind the attack, so it's just another sign of, well, Russia losing their grip mm. on the war, and then another sign that it could be worrying that Putin could retaliate and and escalate it even further. Yeah, this definitely seems like a turning point, and I think it seems like a turning point where Putin is potentially starting to come unravelled, because I think we've seen, even though we had obviously the annexations last week, um, he's potentially losing his grip and his sort of upper hand. Like, this explosion has definitely passed some of the power back to Ukraine, I think. Um, and I think even though, you know, Zelensky's warned that Russia is potentially getting ready for a nuclear attack, even though that would be very scary, I think it's just another sign of Putin trying to grasp onto any form of power because this, this war now has been going on for, well, almost eight months. He, I think he, he is getting desperate, I think. After this, you know, this bridge, even though I think it's par- partially reopened now, I think, yeah. or it had at the weekend. Yeah. So they've, they've still got some access to Crimea. That's their easiest way to get through Crimea. They're still looking for something desperate in order to hold on to that upper hand, I think. Yeah, and just to, to say that that bridge is essential for mm. the movement of supplies and troops um, from Russia to Ukraine for the war. But it's just with the, the Putin threatening... Not threatening, but preparing his own mm. people for the possible use of a nuclear weapon. To me, that is it. The bridge is a sign of Russia losing its grip, but it's a sign of poking the bear almost too far. Um, yeah, absolutely. Every Putin will take it personally these, mm. these attacks on his ego. Exactly, especially um, when it's Crimea as well, because obviously that's uh, territory they've taken hold of. Was it twenty fourteen? Yeah. He built that bridge in twenty eighteen. I think you're right. He'll definitely take it personally. And again, as you've said, that is their easiest access from Russia through Crimea to get to Ukraine, sort of move supplies, uh, military, artillery, whatever they need for this war. Crimea was their way in. The alternative, I was uh, watching a video on Sky at the weekend, and the alternative route they had to take was via sea through sort of Mariupol, um, and basically the route they had to take to get to Ukraine was then going past Ukraine forces. They were they were right in the firing line, so obviously it's making it a lot harder for them. Um, yeah, so obviously it's made it's yeah it's made the war a lot more difficult for them now. And it shows Ukraine's reach as well that they're mm. not just defending within. Yes. Ukraine on the back front, they can actually take their own offensive 
and attack Russia back where you know in this critical critical military target would you call mm. it but Joe Biden came out I think it was a couple of days ago and said he mentioned the word Armageddon oh, which yeah. has scared people a little bit because that it, he's he's basically said he doesn't see any outcome where if nuclear weapons are used mm. that there won't be an Armageddon and then Putin has, has said in response sort of that America's the only country ever to use a nuclear weapon yeah. and they've used it twice um, obviously on the two Japanese cities in mm, World War course. Two. so Putin has kind of taken this this moral high ground with the nuclear weapons being that we've never used Almost them. That, you know we're not the yeah. first and using that to say actually the West isn't as yeah. good and as moral as it likes to present itself as yeah he's definitely I think he's been very critical of the West this week hasn't it again with the sort of threat of the nuclear war yeah sort of citing that Russia is better than the West which is hard to believe but I think I think the interesting thing about this as well um, again sort of a lot of stuff came out of this little new uh, news bite on Sky News that I found that this could potentially um, give Ukraine an advantage. They said it was approximately they could give them a two-week advantage in the war because it would take around that time to um, to fix the bridge as well, even though it's partially reopened, sort of get it back to what it was before. And, I mean, a lot can happen in two weeks, it as can, we've yeah. seen. Yeah, but I think it's for it's all well and good, Ukraine having these military successes, but the problem is that, Ukraine fighting back so successfully isn't de-escalating the war as we might expect mm. it to do. It's actually escalating it further. So Putin, I woke up this morning and read that um, Russia have been attacking Ukraine again. Yes. Uh, bombing Ukraine, not Ukraine, sorry, Kiev. Yeah. Bombing Kiev again. So that's kind of also in response. So it just keeps ramping up and ramping up. And even week by week, so last week we were talking about escalation mm. um, with Putin annexing those four... Ukrainian areas in the in the east, and now we're talking about escalation again. And I assume next week we'll come and talk about escalation, escalation again. again. Yeah, and you know where's that going to lead us to? It'll be yeah. I think it'll be one step up after another. And I think especially after this bridge attack, like you say, Putin will take it personally. He will want to retaliate in a big way. He's already started bombing Kiev again. Yeah. Um. I saw a video just before we came in of a BBC reporter who actually had to stop in the middle of his report and take cover in his hotel because the bombings were getting so bad. So, yeah, the question is, what happens after this? What's next? Because I think he's going to want to retaliate in a big way. Obviously, there's been mention of nuclear war, but you just wonder what comes next. It does, and this is a war between Russia and Ukraine, but it's it's actually a war between Russia and the entire West. That's, a lot of yeah. his comments are targeted towards Americans, specifically America, mm. and that's, that's why we're just... It does feel like... So the Cuban Missile Crisis was one step away from nuclear war and then this just feels almost the same it feels like we're one yeah. step away from it which is really scary to be saying that that is how yeah i think it's felt like that for a while with russia that we're one we're one step away from something big and everyone's sort yeah. of poised on this precipice of what is putin going to do next are we all going to be dragged into this because i think you are right it is it's not just russia and ukraine the whole world is involved in this. Like even you know, Ukraine is calling on the West and has been repeatedly to get involved to do something to pledge their support to help. You know, we've been sending over supplies, but I think it's getting to the point now where they're going to be asking the West if it does progress. You know, are they going to are they going to be an ally in in this war? I think I think that's potentially what we're looking at next. Yeah, and with the only thing that has stopped nuclear all out nuclear mm. war 
since the you know the creation of nuclear weapons is mutually assured destruction where basically if you if you nuke one country they'll nuke you back and you're both yeah, there'd exactly. be nothing left to fight for so that is kind of the balance on which the west and the east well the west and russia they're kind of balancing on that if you mm. completely destroy us we'll completely destroy you yeah. and that's like a safety net which has worked over the last however many 50 years mm. but it's not a nice it's not a peaceful agreement to the world is it? so you can no. see how any outbreak of war that becomes threats nuclear threats so the world's peace um you know since world war Two, it's quite a long peace mm, it has um, yeah so that 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 was balanced on a kind of dark agreement that we won't completely destroy you if you don't completely destroy us. But that is a very very dangerous agreement to have, yeah. Because obviously that could change at any moment, as we're sort of seeing now. So the next story we've got is obviously Liz Truss. And I think there's a lot to unpack with this. We could just talk about Liz Truss herself, but the main story is that former Tory MPs um, are potentially looking at replacing Liz Truss with Rishi Sunak as a caretaker MP. Uh, and linked with that, I think Liz Truss is very much linked with the energy crisis, obviously the cost of living crisis at the moment. Going into the winter month, we're now potentially looking at the national grid, um, who are sent out warnings that there may be three-hour energy blackouts in the winter. Um, and obviously the question is now, should we be changing our energy habits to prepare for this as well. Um, I think Liz Truss has just had an absolutely chaotic week and I don't think she's doing herself any favours at all. Um, So obviously we had the mini budget, which we talked about last week. This has now come out this week that Rishi Sunak is potentially going to be coming forward as a caretaker MP. Even Grant Shapps has come forward over the weekend to say he he wants to be in the running as well. Um, And they believe that Rishi Sunak would be... I think he would be... They think he would be healthy for the country. Um, obviously, he was former Chancellor, so even if the Tories were on course to lose the next election, he may rescue their position at the moment. Obviously, given the sort of events of the last week, the Tories have managed to put their opponents' Labour ahead by thirty percent in the poll, by thirty points in the poll. Sorry, and I think the feeling is that if Rishi Sunak was to come in, he may potentially reverse that, reverse that, maybe not completely, but put the Tories in a better position than they are currently. I mean, I don't know where to start with this. There's so uh, much yeah. to unpack with Liz Truss. I think it is categorically the worst start to a, Absolutely. a prime time in office. I mean, she's been in office less less than a month, and obviously within that, we had the 10 days mourning period for the Queen. So it's maybe, I don't know, we're looking at two, three weeks fully yeah. in office. I think it's just been a it's a car crash. It is. So we had the, the mini-budget, yep. the reversal on the mini-budget. Yeah. The effects all that had on mortgage rates, uh, the pound dropped to record lows against the dollar, and now there's new calls for, and this is calls not just from the public or from the opposition, Labour, Lib Dems, this is calls from Tory MPs coming out and saying that it's essential that Liz Truss raises welfare and benefits in line mm. with inflation. Yeah. So it's her own MPs in her own party Come speaking out against the Prime Minister yet again. So th- that's just... So we talk about... So on top of the the benefits being called for, being raised to um, in line with inflation, mm. we've got, as you said, the National Grid announcement. Yeah. So it's just stacking up pressure on pressure. And I think the biggest problem for Liz Truss was that this 
needed to be a clean break government and they tried that with the mini budget they tried to That's be completely it, yeah. new radical different but the problem is Liz Truss has been part of every government since David Cameron mm. she's been part of the cabinet for the last 12 years yeah so it's not a new it's not a new government it's the, exactly the same they needed someone completely fresh new not tarnished by mm. the, the brush of previous governments yeah and I think you think, as you said, Liz Truss has been part of the Cabinet for the last 12 years. She's seen how the Tories have evolved, what they've done to the country. You'd almost treat that as maybe revision in a way. You know, this is what her predecessors have done. You'd hope, I think, that she would learn from that. She'd come in and, like you say, she would be a refresh to the public and, and to Britain and to British politics. But I think, if anything, she's done the complete opposite. And I think what annoys what annoys me the most, and I think what annoys the public the most, is she seems so unfazed by it and quite tone deaf I'd say in terms of the policies she's brought in her attitude yeah she did, seems totally unfazed by all the problems that are stacking up and that she is you know willfully created in the last few weeks the biggest of which being the budget and the reversal on that and there's a lot of people now who would you know, who are really criticizing I mean obviously we've got potentially Richard Sunak coming in and the Tory MPs who were who were backing that but then we've also had Nicola Sturgeon um, coming over the weekend as well, or I think it was maybe Thursday or Friday, where she said, since Liz Truss has come into office, she has not had a call, she has had no contact with her since she became PM. So she's not even working on on those relationships in office. So not only is she damaging her relationship with the public, with other colleagues as well, and yeah. again, she just carries on, completely unfazed, it appears anyway. It's a real continue. I've said it needed to be a break, from the past government, mm. Johnson's government, it's a continuation of it. It's yeah, the continuation yeah. of chaos and mm. disregard for government decisions that have huge effects on people's lives. The mortgage rates could affect people over the next 10 years, paying more money, yeah. which would negate any help that they've put out for energy bills and stuff like that. And I think the biggest problem is that the people don't have a choice in... They haven't had the general election, a voter choice in no. leader... Um, the opposition don't get to choose but it's the Tory MPs who have the power to remove her and that's what's so significant that it's the Tory MPs coming out and speaking mm-hmm. against her Michael Gove spoke very strongly um, the leader of the House of Commons Penny Morden spoke out in specifically about benefits and raising them in line with inflation and just it, in relation to the, the National Grid uh, announcing that there's going to be well not go- going to be there's potential for three hour yeah energy blackouts does Liz Truss need to act now before that is, becomes a possible a real possibility because if you look with things like COVID mm. surely we needed to learn that the sooner you acted yeah. the more control you had over a situation mm. over the economy yeah I think that's a really good point you brought up there you'd think after COVID and obviously I, I think we were very slow in our reaction as was Boris Johnson and how we dealt with that you would think that seen as you know we've sort of come out of the pandemic now it, you know I don't know if we can say it's over but we've sort of moved past that now you think reflecting on that you'd know how to handle yourself in a crisis and what to do but Liz Truss absolutely needs to act now otherwise she will I mean obviously I know we're two years away from a general election but she's going to damage her image even more than she already is she's going to damage the Tory image which is I'd say potentially at its worst um, and she will lose that general election I think at this moment now, her survival as PM and her public image as the leader of the Tory party is very much linked to 
how this energy crisis is going to play out over the next couple of months. You know, we've had warnings of blackouts. C- can you imagine she- what it would be like if we had those three-hour blackouts? Like that she would, <laughs> she would have to go. It would be as simple as that. If you think she, yeah. about um, hospitals, how would that affect hospitals? Well, exactly. What about food storage for mm. um, supermarkets, farmers, stuff like that? That would be. That would really that would spell the end of Liz Truss and would spell the end yeah. of the Conservative Party. I think as well, just going back to what you said, it would just be chaos. I think that is the word to describe Liz Truss and the Tory party at the moment. It's just yeah. chaos. Because, yeah, as you say, imagine, it, especially going into the winter month, where hospitals get busier. You you know, you see a lot of older people getting ill, having to, be, having to go into hospital. That's going to be even more essential. And blackouts, I can't remember the last time we had a blackout. I, I can't remember having a blackout since I was a kid. So we're talking, you know, 15, yeah. 20 years. If if it does come to that, it yeah, it would just be dire. And I can't see Liz Truss coming back from that. I mean, she's really, I think she's painted herself into a corner at the moment. Yeah. But that would just make her situation even worse. Um, we've linked these two stories together because obviously, mm. the, as you said, the energy crisis is going to have such an impact on yeah. Liz Truss as Prime Minister. But if just if we look at them separately for a second... With energy, should we be changing our energy habits now and, and not be waiting for these three-hour blackouts that could possibly happen? Do we need to be consuming less energy? Yeah. Public buildings, do they need to be turning off lights overnight, knocking down the heating by a few degrees? This is stuff that's been happening in Germany already. Yeah. They've put that into place. Oh, um, right. But they rely a lot more um, heavily on Russian mm. uh, oil and fuel. So, so they that's made why they've needed to do that. We rely on a lot less, I think it's something like 3%. Right. But do we need to be changing our habits now is what I'm... I think we definitely need to do And I think people are doing this already. Yeah. You know, we've seen um, in the past, well, since Liz Truss has come in, I'd say, you know, businesses reducing their open hours so they don't have to worry about heating and electricity. Uh, in fact, I was reading the newspaper at the weekend and the AI put in a whole section on, you know, how to sort of manage this crisis, what to do, you know, change the energy saving light bulbs, you know, keep the heating off, all, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, turn lights off when you're not using them, all these sort of things. People are already preparing for the worst, I think, because we can, I think we can clearly see the government is not one to be relied upon at the moment in terms of managing this crisis, giving advice or offering any sort of support. So I think people are just taking it into their own hands. Because they can see if you know blackout. The mention of blackouts, obviously, it's not definite, but it's already out there. So if people are seeing that as the worst case scenario, they're already yeah. going to be preparing for the worst. Because the the government prepare for worst case scenarios all the time, mm. but we wouldn't be talking about these scenarios if it wasn't a possibility. Exactly. Yeah. So the next story we've got, it, it wasn't a particularly big story, but I saw this and I just had to talk about it because it made me incredibly angry. So I think it was Thursday, uh, there was a video went viral on, well, I think it was all over the internet, but I found it on TikTok. And it was basically a group of male students at a university in Madrid who created this sort of synchronised... I don't know if you call it an activity, protest, something like that, where basically the video showed them all in their dorms at university. Uh, There was a man who was screaming out the window, screaming very misogynistic, sexist comments. And suddenly, all at the same time, the blinds of every other room in this building went up and all the men were just screaming in unison. And you can't see it in the video, it just focuses on the male block um, of accommodation. But across the way, apparently there is a block 
for female students and that's where all these comments were directed at and over the weekend you've just seen the fallout of this where the government's called it out the university has called it out and people around the world are just reacting to this and it's horrible it, it is it is really disgusting really and although there have been some students who reacted to this saying oh it's a tradition it's very normal which i suppose to them it's just it's part of maybe the university culture but the reaction it's getting all over the world evidently says it's not okay so um the country's equality minister uh, irene montero said the episode was the clearest proof of the need for education on sexual consent given what was being said by these students there have been students who have been expelled because of this behavior uh, and all this behavior only comes months um, after Spain has approved legislation known as the only yes means yes law uh, which is making it easy for victims of sexual violence to prosecute their um, assailants by emphasizing the importance of consent so again it wasn't a massive story but I did think it was just really important to flag because I was just I was shocked yeah. when I saw the video and what happened that's what with the I think I was reading on the BBC article mm. that a statement attributed to the residents of the all-female block. Yeah, they actually came out and said that this is a practice and tradition, mm. um, which has gone on for decades and ye- years and decades. But that is a tradition that you'd only see something like this in the in the past years yeah. and years ago. It's just it doesn't belong in our world today. That's it exactly. I think it, that's it doesn't why doesn't belong in any world really, does it? No, it doesn't. That I think that's why it's got such a big reaction because yeah, like these students have come out and said, you know, oh, it's been blown out of proportion. We don't know why everyone's going on about it. But yes, it's a tradition, but it's a tra- tradition that's clearly bred this sort of behaviour and it's normalised the fact that yeah. these students can say this and have no repercussions for it. And like you say, that that behaviour doesn't belong no. In today's world, which is why everyone who's seen this story, seen this video, I think came out from Vice, um, they're appalled that this behaviour has been normalised. And obviously now the people who've been involved are facing repercussions as they should. But it's just like the comment I've put on here. And when I saw this, I felt angry, but I just felt really sad, to be honest. And I've put it that it's just sex. It, it proves, I think, that sex education is so dire across the globe that it feels like gender equality, women's rights and sort of the offshoots of that are just moving at a glacial pace. You know, obviously the, the government in Spain are, have, have got their own laws and legislation in place to deal with sexual violence and things like that, but it almost feels like one step forward, two steps back, yeah, even. Absolutely, and that's... Um, it's just we need to change the way women are talked about amongst mm. groups of men. Yeah. This is not something... It's just it's the sheer scale of it. If it was a group of five or ten... Mm then you could say that, that it's like an anomaly. It's not, It doesn't represent those group of students. But if you look at the video, it's the entire... There's a lot entire of people. Block. Yeah. There's a lot of people. And I think that it's the scale of that that yeah. really, you have to stand, bu- stand back and think, what is... What this is, is just unacceptable yeah, entirely. Like, yeah. What is going on? What was the thought behind that? I think the scariest thing was the fact that it's, it's clearly been planned, and obviously they said it's a tradition, but it's clearly planned and calculated, yeah. where you can see... You know, all the blinds coming up at once and they're all, like, it's so noisy when they're screaming and chanting out these windows. And what they're saying is disgusting. Like, we can't repeat what they've said because it's so bad. So, I, I, you know, we've talked a lot about turning points, I think. I hope this is another turning point. But, yeah, I just wanted to flag this because I was just shocked that something like this could appear and happen, especially among young people as well, because obviously when you think it's at a university, they're, yeah. they're people probably like our age. And I'd like to think that people our age are quite liberal, open-minded, progressive. They're sort of the pioneers of change, I'd say. 
and yet you've got a group of young men acting like this. Yeah, it's it's kind of the only thing I can link it to is kind of the way universities in England mm. have socials and there's some traditions from yeah. socials that are clearly not uh, in fitting with today's mm. world. But this is the scale of it, the things they were saying. Did the university must have been aware that this was going to happen or had already happened before? Unless it's, this is the first time. Yeah, that's happened, but if it's, if they're saying it's a tradition, it's tradition yeah. it must happen every year. So the university really needed to step in and mm. kind of stamp this out if it is a tradition. Yeah. And then if it's not a tradition, then they've got absolutely no excuse. No, you make a good point because I think they are aware that this has happened. And I think, again, I've read a few stories about this because the BBC covered it. Um, there have been staff and students, I think, in the past who have made reports about this. And as far as I know, either... Nothing has happened or very, or very little has happened. I can't entirely remember. But you're absolutely right. If it's a tradition, and it seems like it's a long-standing tradition, yeah. they knew this was going to happen. They could have prepared for it. They could have prepared for someone... Because I think that's why it's got so much attention now, because someone's videoed it, they've put it on the internet, and then obviously now they're having to cover their back. So maybe that's why they're now condemning this behaviour, because it's been revealed that this is actually going on. Had this video not been put on the internet... We would have been none the wiser. We wouldn't even be having this conversation. So, yeah, maybe it's a case of they knew it was going to happen because it was tradition. They didn't think to stop it. But now that it's out there, they've got to show some form of punishment consequence, I think. I think they've... It says the Guardian wrote that those involved have been asked to write letters of apology. Oh, yes. Um, So I think whether that classes as punishment or yeah if well it's just a, a harmless tradition it just i i didn't understand it it just you just watch something and you think what is yeah i didn't understand what was happening why it was happening why would that even be a tradition in the first place that exactly still happens like where where does a tradition like that yeah. come from um but yeah so it said that the people involved i think there was one main ringleader and then a few other guys who were sort of his his lackeys i suppose yeah. who yeah been asked to write letters of apology um, and I think the ringleader has been expelled from the university. The others are facing some of the sort of punishment. But yeah, I, I popped that in when it said they've been asked to write letters of apology. That almost seems like something you'd do in primary school. You yeah. know, like you, I don't know, push someone over on the playground or someone's mean to you, and you go, oh, you know, shake hands, be friends. That's why I'd sort of equate it mm-hmm. to. It seems very redundant because I don't think a letter of apology can really I think that, cover that. That matches the the actions and the tradition. That's like a childish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. thing isn't it so that they've been given a childish uh, punishment I suppose that's yeah it is very childish so our last hard news story mm-hmm. is about fracking and a source in Westminster has floated the possible idea that houses could be offered £1,000 to allow fracking to happen in their community this comes after the government have said you know, we need to bring back fracking because there's an energy yeah. crisis, we need it. And then they've said, actually, but we won't just put fracking where people don't want it because there's big protests wherever mm. fracking goes. The government have said that the community has to agree for it to come in. Obviously, no one's going to agree for fracking to be happening no, on their doorstep. So now they're floating the idea that there could be some financial incentive to... Oh, in- wow. Financial incentive to allow fracking to happen just to touch on fracking itself it it works well in america mm. which is what 
um, supporters of fracking would say, but America has these vast amounts of land where there's no population anywhere near where they do these fracking sites. Mm. Um, where basically they they have they make a fracking well where they drill deep into the earth, mix sand and all sorts, and then that releases gas and there's some contention over whether it causes earthquakes we think it does cause earthquakes but not significant ones nothing Mm. to be worried about what i highlighted with this story was it it just seems to be short-termism short-term gain in this energy crisis and the first thing to go is stuff that is happening for the climate Mm. so there's talk of the green levy being scrapped as well and they want to bring back fracking it just seems that you know climate is such a big issue but it's always the first to go Mm. when it should actually be the 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 most important issue really Uh, yeah absolutely i mean i think i might i might quiz you on this a little bit because obviously this is sort of you know more about this than me the fact that they're offering one thousand so is it one thousand pounds to sort of the individuals who agree or one thousand pounds per community i think it would be per household per household right um but it's not because then they they go to like a, a vote in the community. Mm. They wouldn't offer the one thousand pounds beforehand yeah. to vote. <laughs> that, yeah. that's bribery. <laughs> but they'd be they'd be giving it to members of the community afterwards, mm. which is supposedly so the benefits of fracking will then be given directly to the community. Right. Um. But it's just it's such a small. It, it would have no impact on the cost of living crisis. No, a thousand pounds isn't so a lot, is it? You know, it's not going to give us masses amounts of more energy. No. So it just seems like it's just another thing where the government have sort of hung the hat on something that is just so out of touch with what's going on. Yeah. The mini budget, they want to bring back fracking, cut taxes for the wealthiest. It's just like seriously out of touch with with what's going on, out of touch with the people and with their own Mm. MPs. Yeah, definitely. When you said you wanted to cover this story, I was, when I saw like, They've offered a thousand pounds. I was like, they they haven't done this. I was shocked that that was even a story because it just seems like, again, another idea that's trying to plaster over a crack. They've got serious issues, and yet and and yet they're going to fracking, which, as you've said, is so controversial. It's caused yeah. so many protests. Again, it just seems like there's been no thought put into it. It's just you know, quick. We need you know we need a quick fix, and this is what they're going with. Again, linked to the energy crisis, but. And this is a big this is a big story specifically here in the northwest mm, as well. Yeah. So I think there's a site in Blackpool, um, Preston New Road, I think it's called, right. where fracking began, and they since stopped it because it wasn't beneficial. Mm. And that company Quadrilla, who agreed to do that fracking, have since come out and said actually, you know, fracking in in Britain is not beneficial at all, and they're oh a main fracking company. Oh my gosh, company. really? Yeah. So. <laughs> so even the the company. Who does the fracking doesn't think it's a good idea. Didn't think it was a good idea. That specific company. Right. Um, so in terms of the benefits, again, you know more about this than me, has the government sort of laid out how these communities are going to af- like benefit from this? No, or? this is just an idea that's came from a source inside right. inside the government um, <clears throat> where they're just floating the idea. I think they're just seeing what people ah, think. Ah, so they're just if, floating it, okay. Because... No community is going to agree to fracking happen Mm-mm. on their doorstep. They might no believe in fracking, but they don't want to see it. They don't want to be in no. the immediate effects of it. They want it to be far away from where yeah. they are. And they're certainly not going to agree to it for a thousand pounds. Well, they? that's what I think. That's what they're trying to test to see if people would be like, "Oh, a 
thousand pounds, I'd agree to that. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure they would. So. No, I don't. I don't think they would at all. I don't think that. No, I don't think that idea will take really. Okay, so I think that's all for the major news stories. So um, our plan, because again, it seems like our news stories are quite heavy this morning. So we picked one good news story to sort of. Know, lift the mood I'd say so we've just talked about the environment uh, and how the government is potentially not helping with that but we do have our good news story which is on the environment and how there are some positive changes happening there so Ocean Cleanup which is a company um, who looks after obviously the environment and sort of working towards towards removing plastic deposits um, so they've launched a new invention that will clear up masses of plastic deposits in the sea and their main target is cleaning up the Great Pacific garbage patch so this new invention will be two and a half kilometers long and hold 25,000 kilograms worth of plastic and it's basically sort of long almost tube net something like that it's basically a container that's going to hold a lot of plastic and remove it from the sea Uh, and the main thing with this because obviously you'd imagine an invention like that going into the sea may interfere with some marine life they've sort of showed a video again i found this on tiktok of how it's going to work and it is it does very much look like a net kind of um invention so marine life can pass through it's not going to be effective it's not going to be detrimental to them but the point of this is there's a real chance of cleaning up the amount of plastic that's in the sea and specifically referring to this great pacific garbage patch they've i thought of estimated that they can use maybe about 10 of these systems to clean up that entire patch so i just thought this was a nice news story that there is you know, like you said, you talked about the environment and how that is sometimes the first thing to go. But here is something at least that is working towards clearing up the rubbish that we see in the sea. Yeah, the, the stat I came across was that 90% mm. of the plastic in our oceans could be gone by 2040 Yeah. with this new invention. But the, I was reading this and I thought I was really smart. I was thinking, so they're going to take the plastic out of the ocean? Yes. Where's it going to go? What's going to happen to it? I thought it was really smart in saying that mm. and then I just scrolled a bit further down <laughs> and it, it said that most of the plastic is going to be recycled into new stuff yeah. and what can't be recycled into new stuff is going to be thermally recycled to make energy ah. so this is just a bulletproof good news so they, story they've, they've really thought it through but it we've is, got yeah. some energy good news there as well so yeah yeah. Um, yeah I thought this was quite an uplifting story and I think there was another story with the yeah, I did find couple, another story that was just... A couple that have found gold <laughs> coins on the floorboards. Yeah, it was a little bit of an oddity. Um, that I was listening. I went back and listened to the Radio 4 Today show you recommended, and I was just sort of listening to the headlines, and I, this just stopped me because I thought, this is amazing. But yeah, basically what happened is um, the way they described it on the BBC is a treasure trove that's been found with more, more than 260 gold coins that this couple have just discovered underneath their kitchen floor. Uh, and it's been sold at auction for three quarters of a million pounds, which is incredible. So the collection, which was found in East Yorkshire uh, in 2019, was spotted inside a pot under the floor, yet yeah, the 18th century floorboards and the coins are dated, which was the most amazing fact to me. I love this. The coins date from between 1610 and 1727, which I just thought was fantastic. They've been under there for years and now this couple have got three quarters of a million pounds from it, which is not a bad stash at no, all. Good news story for them, at least, isn't it? Yeah, well, sure it's it good for them, yeah. <laughs> start pulling up floorboards, but I don't think we're going to find quarter, three quarters of a million pounds. No, everyone's so. going to be looking down the back of their sofas now, wherever they can find, but I just thought that was incredible. Should we move on to sport? Sport, yes. Yeah, sport. sport, what's been going on in sport? In football this week, Liverpool 
unfortunately lost to Arsenal 3-2 yesterday, which I really don't want to talk about. Yeah, and then, we won't dwell on that. No. And then Manchester United beat Everton in the late kickoff, whilst also on Sunday West Ham beat Fulham and Crystal Palace came away 2-1 winners over Leeds. Whilst on Saturday Spurs beat Brighton, Newcastle thrashed Brentford, as did Man City coming out 4-0 winners against Southampton. No surprise to learn that Erling Haaland scored again. And Chelsea beat Wolves 3-0, whilst Bournemouth came out 2-1 winners over Leicester. And that last result was of particular importance to me, um, or more so to my friend, Mm. because I run this thing called Last Man Standing, um, where at the start of the season, everyone puts in £10, and each week you have to pick a team to Mm. win. And if your team doesn't win you're knocked out oh, so if they draw if they lose you're knocked out and if you do go through you can pick the same you, you can't pick the same team mm. again so if you pick Man City week one you can't pick them for the entire right. rest of the thing um, but it came down to two people my friend and his dad <laughs> <laughs> and one of my, my friend picked Chelsea to beat Wolves which they did 3-0 and his dad picked Leicester to be Bournemouth, and Bournemouth beat Leicester. Oh. So he, he's he's come out and won the entire pot of money. So oh, he was amazing! Very happy. Good uh, news for him, then. Yeah, that's good news for him <laughs> as well. <laughs> Elsewhere in sport, England beat Australia in the first T20 international, um, beating them by just eight runs. And in Formula One, as we mentioned last week, mm. Max Verstappen was on the verge of becoming world champion. This week in Japan, he's been finally crowned world champion. Um, even though there's still four races left on the calendar. But there was some outrage in that race, because, uh, especially outrage amongst drivers and fans, because there was a recovery vehicle on track um, whilst drivers were passing. And this sparked a considerable reaction, because many people have recounted the circumstances of the death of Jules Bianchi in 2015, who collided with a recovery vehicle on track. So it's it's the exact same circumstances, but this time obviously there was no collision. So the the drivers drivers have came out and spoke very strongly Mm. against that. So I think that wraps up our sport. Next, moving on to books. Yep, book of the week. Book of the week. Mine is uh, Times Arrow by Martin Amos. Mm. Don't know whether you will have heard of it, came across it. I haven't actually. But it is, I think, the best book I've came across not it's just it's made me made me think the most oh, okay it's the, it's the book that's made me think the most wow um so the book recounts the life of a nazi holocaust doctor hmm. but in reverse chronology so the book opens with his death and ah. goes backwards in time towards you know through the holocaust hmm. to when he was born so it goes through his life he, he, he lives under he lives in america under a pseudonym then it goes back to auschwitz and then closes with his childhood and then his birth which just sounds so odd to say but <laughs> the biggest thing is that the narrator of the novel which is the doctor's conscience right is unaware of the reversal in time so he's narrating oh. things as if they're happening it sounds very benjamin button it's like a reverse benjamin button yeah. in, in many ways so people talk and gibberish he doesn't understand what people are saying this is fascinating um, at one point you have to read like a dialogue mm. literally back the words are written backwards which is quite difficult he stops doing that after a while wow. um, people walk backwards they read from right to left so the conscience is very confused Yeah. but the central reversal and the whole kind of philosophical hook that the book rests on is that 
you see in this book all these backwards things that don't make any sense. Um, so people, you know, get out of taxis and then wait, which doesn't oh, make sense. Oh, right, I see. Um, you know, people take stuff out of the fire, so they take paper mm. out of the fire. Yeah. So the fire doesn't burn, it, it creates. But the central reversal then is that the Holocaust and Auschwitz becomes a place no longer of death and destruction, but of life and creation. So in the eyes of the narrator, people go into the gas chambers dead, come out alive, and then they work in Auschwitz. So the sign above the gates in Auschwitz oh. makes clear that it, it, I think it's work sets work you sets free, you free. which amazing. doesn't make sense in in our world. Yeah. But it, in this reverse time, they, they come out of the gas chamber, work, and then are set free. So there's been... The books come under criticism because there's parts where it seems like he's trivialising the Holocaust, he's mm. playing with it, uh, Martin Amos... Um, he makes some jokes throughout about the stuff that doesn't make sense. Right. About how, like, the doctor's relationships, they begin with arguments and mm. end with love and affection, which doesn't make sense. And then yeah. there's jokes about how that's how they work either way around. Mm. You run it. But the key message of the book is that the Holocaust only makes sense in this backwards world. We can't understand it in our world. This is the This backwards place is the only place where it makes sense, the only place we can think about it because it's just so unfathomable in the world we live in so this was a must read for me yeah it's not too long it's only about 100 pages and it gets you thinking about something that is just so shocking that you don't you almost feel like it didn't happen mm. like it, it that couldn't possibly exist in our society it's just so that seems like it must have been so long ago when it's what 80 80 years ago it's only Eighty years a ago, lifetime. Yeah. It's just a bit. It, it's scary in that sense. So this makes mm. you think about it. What kind of world would it make sense in? It can only make sense in a completely backwards world. Yeah. So that is my book of the week, Times Arrow by Martin Amos. This just sounds incredible. This sounds like something I definitely need to read. Yeah. So it's you said it, the book made you think. Mm-hmm. What What were you sort of thinking as you were reading it? What What stood out to you? Maybe. Um, just sort of it stood out it just made me think that how how did the holocaust happen how did that Mm. happen in our society our world it's just almost it just makes you think about something that is people think about it but it's not i don't think it quite sinks in yeah just how horrific and the point of the book how backwards Mm. it is um so that's what it had me thinking about and then it's just how the narrator interacts with stuff. Um, so the the doctor you see him in when he's in America, he's you can be quite critical because he's not he's not depressed or guilty. Mm. He's like relieved that he's made it to America under a pseudonym, under a fake passport right. and stuff. So you've got the the um, narrator obviously commenting on himself. Mm. But backwards, so you get points where the doctor's just looking in the mirror, and the narrator comments about why is he staring in the mirror. So it's it's making you think like he's looking at who he is as a person and stuff like yeah. that. So it's just it, it really gets you thinking about all sorts about guilt, about the Holocaust. There's no sort of there's no view from the like survivors or victim side. It's just purely from the doctor's conscience and it, it, it is a bit of a play it's a bit gimmicky okay but it's it is 
definitely a must read for me. Yeah. Is it based on a true story? I mean, obviously, I know the Holocaust happened, but in terms of the character of the Doctor, I I don't think so. But there would right. have been Nazi doctors yeah. who were, you know, sort of, you know, testing mm. stuff on Jewish people, um, and who would have been involved in, you know, the chemical aspect of yeah, that's of what, what was I was going on. thinking. Yeah, but I mean, that sounds it just sounds fascinating I really want to read that now yeah. it sounds amazing so in terms of my book I am reading We Are Not Like Them by Christine Pride and Joe Piazza I've just started this I'm only about 40 pages in and again it's a very heavy book so it's sort of set up as um, these two friends so you've got Jenny who is white and Laroya she goes by Riley in the book um, who is a woman of colour and they are best friends. They've been best friends for about 10 years when we meet them at the start of the book. Uh, and at this point, um, Riley is a very su- successful journalist and broadcaster. She works in TV. And Jenny is, well, she's pregnant. She's about to become a mother and she's married to a police officer. Um, and again, it's set up there. Best of friends are really close. But you get into the sort of crux of the book quite quickly where what happens is... Uh, as I mentioned, Jenny is the wife of a police officer. Her husband shoots a 14-year-old black boy right at the start of the book. And then the story is going to follow the fallout of that. Obviously, Jenny's involved very personally because it involves her husband. And Riley works in the media and is, you know, sort of personally and professionally involved because she's attached to Jenny, but she's also attached to her work and, I suppose, her identity as well and her responsibility to report on that. Again, like I've said, I've only just sort of got into the book. I've only just got to the part where um, the shooting has happened. But the book is going to look at, you know, obviously their relationship and how it maybe develops and potentially breaks down because of this tragedy. But then it also flips back. It flips between past and present as well. So you're looking at how the events play out, but then also how Jenny and Riley became friends in the first place. And it's interesting looking at that because the chats I've read of that so far are looking at them in their university days when they first met or when they're sort of... No, I think by this point they've met, they're sort of far away from each other, but so they're still friends. Uh, And the impression I'm getting so far is that Jenny... I don't know how to describe this. It's maybe quite tokenistic with her friend... uh, Yeah, with her friendship with Riley. You know, she's always really proud of the fact that her best friend is black and Mm. she can sort of say, you know, she's not racist because she's got this person in her life and they've been friends for so long and that even seems to translate to the present day in their adult life as well so yeah that's what I've got so far it's very heavy but it's it's fascinating so far um and I think it's going to be a very powerful very interesting read as well do we know anything behind why it's titled as it is I know do you have any guesses then I'm uh... I don't know. I feel like if if I was to predict what would happen, I would predict that the friendship is going to break down and we are not like them maybe refers to the split between black and white. Mm. That is what I would um that is what I would guess. But yeah, I'm not I'm not sure cuz the sort of tagline of the book even though the title is we are not like them on the front of the cover it says um nothing is black and white or nothing is ever black and white right. something like that. So that's that's what I would predict it means, but um yeah, I will report back when I found out what it actually means. But no, I'm interested. To see yeah, where it, it goes. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so the final bit of the show. So we've decided we're going to pick one film a week to both watch and discuss. So the film we've picked this week that Harry picked was Dunkirk, which I think was quite a good choice based on last week where we watched Do Revenge and it was 
interesting, to say the least. So Dunkirk, for those who don't know, obviously follow the events of the French and English evacuation in 1940, where it was basically a sort of domestic evacuation. So the British and the French were in a really dire situation where the Germans had forced them onto the beach of Dunkirk and they were basically stuck they were sort of almost looking at being occupied. Britain called on sort of all civilian ships and boats of any kind to sort of come over the channel to rescue all these British and French soldiers, which they did. And it was this really, I've written here, Herculean, heroic domestic effort to bring the British and French troops home. Um, and I thought the film was fantastic. Harry smiling. <laughs> yeah, I was underwhelmed with that. I think I, really? I think I went into the film with the wrong idea about what it was what was going to happen what it was going to be like okay what did what were you expecting then well i was expecting like tension action <gasps> I, I just i feel like we didn't see the scale of what was happening at any point hmm. i feel like i'm just listing criticisms now no 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 go on <laughs> go on if this is your but opinion it was meant to be four hundred thousand people soldiers on the beaches of dunkirk hmm. i don't think you ever really see that i've i've looked up the director christopher nolan refused to use cgi yeah. Which is why you don't see that. He wanted to keep it as real as possible. But then you don't see the scale of people. It just it all seemed very easy to happen. Whereas in my mind, what I think about it is that it must have been, you know, incredibly difficult to happen. So you think it was easy? I think they made it look easy. <laughs> <laughs> this is incredible. Wow, I'm really shocked that this is what you thought. Yeah. We we only saw three or two RAF planes fighting. When I've looked up, there's 3,500. Yeah. It's because you won't, with the timings of it, so you had the people on the beach, mm. which that narrative spans one week. Yeah. You had the people on the small boat, which the narrative spanned a day. Yeah, that's right. And then the plane, the narrative spanned an hour. Mm. So it's just, they all, all happened at the same time, but at points you'd see the main characters on the small boat mm. and then it'd flash it not flash back but it would go back to when they were in danger but yeah. you already know they're on the small boat so it's just I just found it you, you know he's tried to keep it very I can see what the director's done mm. it is good it is a good film but I was just expecting more tension more horrors um, you know a bigger scale of what happened because I think something like 70,000 soldiers died. I don't think mm. we see many people. that You do see a few soldiers, but it just it felt very... I've, I've written here 12A. It feels like it was targeted more for everyone. Okay. A bit of like a heroic, patriotic story, um, which it is. Mm. But I think it just didn't... It didn't show the scale of the danger they were in and the right. fear that they had on, mm. on those beaches. This is very interesting because I think we have almost had like complete opposite reactions know, yeah. to the <laughs> film. Because, like I said, I loved it. I thought it was probably one of the best films I've ever watched. Really? Honestly, I thought it was. Tr I thought it was incredible, and what Christopher Nolan has done. And I think I can see why you said a lot of what you said that you know you don't see sort of you know gore and sort of gruesome aspects to it. But I think that was. In I think I read somewhere that that was intentional. Christopher Nolan didn't want. Yeah focus to be on that in terms of the scale i think you do get that because you see all the soldiers on the beach and on the mole and who get on the boats and who were you know the boats explode and all this sort of mm -hmm. stuff so i i think you see the scale to an extent maybe not four hundred thousand, as it mm -hmm. mentioned in the film but to me i thought 
the way he did it was very interesting because I almost thought he he took a story that I'd say everyone knows. Yeah. Everyone at least knows the name Dunkirk yeah. if they don't know the story behind it. And he sort of subverted what you don't usually see. That's the that's what I got from it anyway. So I've put in my notes that it was misleading. You know, when you think Dunkirk, and at least, you know, I was taught about this, so I think everyone was. When you learn about Dunkirk, you learn about this big, you know, Herculean domestic effort. It's known as a victory. It's known as this, you know, really pivotal moment in the Second World War. Where I think the film showed it as actually a massive failure. Because obviously the soldiers are at the point now where they've got nowhere to go. They're on a beach in France waiting to be rescued. And some of them never make it. As you've said, 70,000 soldiers died there. But I think it shows the failure of the government maybe to extend it the military because throughout the film there are calls on like you know where are the where are the aircraft where is yeah where are the people who are going to save them essentially yeah. and you you never see that so i think it's very misleading in terms of telling the story that you don't usually learn about you yeah, learn I about think, the victory you don't learn about the failure i think that's what why i expected something different mm. i expect the kind of like a herculean effort a huge fight you know there's people sprinting from the beaches yeah to the small boats when actually what we saw was probably more realistic. There was kind of like just people like waiting around for a bus mm-hmm. almost, just yeah. sort of deflated. The soldiers were just sitting there lying, mm. waiting. There was, because I think you're right, it, it was a defeat. It was a military defeat. Yeah. So there, there was no like celebration or the soldiers were, like, were not, well, there was no fight because they were running away. That, yeah, that's they it, exactly. They were retreating. Waiting. So I think you are right. I think I expected... Hmm what you were saying there yeah. when actually the reality of it is a bit different which is why I expected a war film and I think it was a survival story yeah I which think which is where I I think that's I it over. but I, I can see why you think that but yeah I do definitely think it was a film of survival and showing the impact of what Dunkirk actually was compared to obviously what it's taught us and I think the biggest way they sort of show that is I think it's quite it's maybe one of the last scenes in the film where they're on the train and Harry Styles' character, I can't remember his name, I don't know if he's given a name, he he can't look out the window, he can't read the newspaper because he's, he's going to think they're going to be so disappointed in us. And I think he says that in the film, you know, they've let everybody down. You know, it, it reveals another kind of trauma. You know, we all know about PTSD and yeah. the effect of shell shock that sort of started in the First World War, sort of became normalised and was very much a part of the Second World War. But in this film, you sort of see the trauma of failing to live up to the uniform you're wearing and you know all these soldiers have either been called up or they've you know volunteered themselves they went to serve their country they went to defeat the germans that was their purpose and yet they're being as you said retreated saved off a beach in france by normal people in britain they haven't done what they sort of promised they'd do so i think there's another layer of trauma there so yeah to me i think the point of the film was just to show the side of Dunkirk that we don't usually see or learn about. But I, I I, did think it was remarkable. One thing I liked as well, which I put here, is have you seen 1917? Yeah. That's what it reminded me of, the way the sort of film was shot and set up. Because there's not a lot of dialogue in it as well, which I thought was no, really that's, interesting. There's no like development of the characters. No, there's not. There. So you don't see... like. It finishes when they get off the train, yeah. Doesn't it? You don't see them go home to families. That's it. Yeah, you don't see what happens next. There's actually they they barely talk throughout the yeah. thing, which is kind of probably eerily accurate. Mm. If you he's trying to set the mood of what it would be like on those beaches, waiting to be saved. Yeah, with the being surrounded by the German army. 
Exactly. Because you're not going to be sat... I don't think you'd be talking too much. No, you? no, you yeah. wouldn't be sat there having a chat, would you? You'd just sort of be in your own thoughts, thinking. But, yeah, that's what I really... Because, like you say, that yeah, they barely talk, which I think was incredible. Mm. They managed to carry off, what, an almost two-hour film, mainly just based on sort of sound and atmosphere and the long camera shots. But I think, I, I think you've convinced me that I was... Have too, I convinced too you? Too critical. <laughs> yeah. Just the scale of it, I would have liked to see. Yeah. More. Because it, it... Just my last thing about the scale yeah, of... You only see one um, small boat, mm. the story of one small boat. It would have been nice to see mm. the story of all the small boats that went, all the different people that went. Um, it might have been nice to see the RAF. You know, if it's a one-hour journey, I'd imagine mm. they were going back and forth, you know, risking coming back, refueling, yeah. going back out again. Yeah, it's a good film. I think <laughs> I've been too critical, but you've convinced me. That's all right, then. Yeah. That's, we'll, we'll finish on that and I've convinced Harry it's a good film. So I say that's that's everything we've got for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Week on Radio and we'll be back next week. See you next week. See you next week. <laughs>